Well, tonight we're talking about love. And just the mention of the word love evokes for us all sorts of images. Love that's cheesy, love that's intense, love that's pained, love that is profound, love that's craved, love that is lavished, love that is pledged, love that is betrayed, and of course puppy love but we talked about that last night. (laughs) You've been made by God to be a lover because we've all been made in the image of God. One of the most important and profound truths that God reveals about himself in the Bible is that he is love and you've been made in his image. And the place to see this above all else is entirely counterintuitive. Love's picture is found in the cruel execution of an innocent man. I'm on page 37 of the booklet tonight. Love's picture. Um, Now, the torturous execution of an innocent man is a picture of many things. It's a picture of evil. It's a picture of injustice. And it's a picture of the scary human capacity for both evil and injustice. But love? That's not really what would spring to mind, surely. And yet that is the consistent testimony of the New Testament as it reflects on the execution of Jesus. A man who was innocent of any crime, he was executed outside of Jerusalem. And and the Bible sees here, in his death, not just a picture of love, but the premier picture of love. It is the moment, above all others, where we get a glimpse into the very heart of God and his heart towards us. You can see the passage there on your page from 1 John chapter 4, 9 to 10. God's love was revealed among us in this way, he writes. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And and that love that God has for us is not just corporate, it's staggeringly personal as well. Paul, there on your page in Galatians 2, talks about Jesus, the Son of God, he says, who loved me and gave himself for me. God's love for the world, God's love for you, is on display right there at the cross in Jesus' loving death as he sacrifices for our sins. So tonight we're going to reflect on this most precious jewel at the heart of the universe, that God is love. And we're going to do it by reflecting on the cross of Jesus because that's where God has revealed his love amongst us. But there's a story, actually, that goes with the picture. The true and living God, Yahweh, has always been a lover. And you can trace that story of his love for the world right through the whole Bible. And we're just going to drop in at a few places in that story to get a bit of a feel for it. So first of all, God redeems the nation of Israel out of love. So when the Old Testament nation of Israel was standing on the edge of the promised land, Moses reminded them that the reason that they were there and not still in slavery back in Egypt was because of God's love. Deuteronomy chapter 7, 7 to 11 is where Moses shares with the Israelites, a few home truths. It's there in the middle of your page. He says to the Israelites this, he says, it was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you 
from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and who repays in their own person those who reject him. He does not delay, but repays in their own person those who reject him. Therefore, observe diligently the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that I am commanding you today. So God redeems the Israelites out of slavery, not because they are in any way impressive. He redeems them because he loves them. And he wants to keep the promise he made to their ancestors, to Abram, Isaac and Jacob. But you might think, well, he's just, he just loves Israel. No, God's no racist. His intention is to, is, is to make a promise. In fact, he, what he did was to make a promise to their ancestor, Abraham. But his intention was never to just bless Israel. His intention was always, as the creator, to bless the whole world. And if you go back to that promise that he made to Abram, back in Genesis chapter 12 on your page, you can see it there. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. That's the Israelites, right? And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's intention was always to bless all people. But he was going to bring blessing to the world through this particular covenant, this promise that he established with Abram and the Israelite nation that he was going to form from Abraham's descendants. They were God's chosen channel, conduit of blessing to the rest of the world. Now, if you turn over the page then to page 38, it's no surprise that God would want to bless the whole world or that he'd love the Israelites, as unimpressive as they were, since that's who God is. He's full of love. Now, we looked at this passage from Exodus 34 last night when we were thinking about God's goodness. It's the key moment at Mount Sinai when God reveals his character to Moses. Exodus 34, starting at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there, proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's who God has revealed himself to be. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. That love shows itself in his willingness, in his desire to forgive sin even though he will also ensure that justice is done. Now, I read a moment ago from Deuteronomy 7, Moses standing with the Israelites on the edge of the promised land. I don't know if you noticed, right at the end of that passage, the Lord tells the Israelites, now you need to keep my commands. Well, if you know the way the rest of the story goes in the Old Testament, that's exactly what the Israelites, as a nation, proved incapable of doing. So point D on the middle of page 38, yet Israel's failure to keep God's commands showed that the real and original enemy still remained. Well, who's this real enemy? Uh, well, the real enemy is sin itself. I'm, I call sin the original enemy because it goes right back to the Garden of Eden. Sin is the enemy that wants to dominate and destroy the whole human race. Sin is the real enemy because in the history of God's people, the ultimate problem was, was not the Egyptians. Their real problem wasn't the Assyrians or the Babylonians nor the Romans. As cruel and evil and wicked as often those nations were to the Israelites, the ultimate problem was actually what was going on inside the Israelites' heart. 
the heart and minds of the God's people, that they just didn't want to be God's people. Psalm 106, which you can read later, presents the tragic history of Israel's relentless rebellion against God. And the psalmist points out that his own generation, in his his own day, they were facing exactly the same problem. Nothing had changed. It's there in verse 6 on your page. The psalmist says, We have sinned even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. The constant enemy of God's people is sin in their heart. But God's love is not defeated by his people's relentless capitulation to sin. In his love, God wins for all time the real redemption to deliver his people from this enemy, from their slavery to sin. And he does it by sending his son Jesus to die and rise for us. So the beautiful words there, point E, of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we're back to the, the climax of God's love story for the world. The great demonstration of his love was in the death of Christ for us. And what God's love in Christ's death achieved for us was forgiveness, was freedom from the condemnation that our sins deserved. That's the great blessing of what he's done for us in his love in Christ. And there's more beautiful words here from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 1-4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though, of course, condemnation for our sin is exactly what we all deserve. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's pause there for a moment. Remember how national Israel was never able to keep God's commands. They they continually just gave way to sin. Well, what's God's solution to that constant capitulation to sin was he has poured out now his Spirit into the hearts of of all Christians. So now that their heart says, I do want to follow you. I might not do it perfectly, but I do want to follow you. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Though God doesn't just set us free from sin slavery in Jesus, he deals with all the condemnation that we deserve for our sin as well, doesn't he? Pick it up again there in verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, Because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So if you turn over the page then to page 39, what we have here in Jesus' death for us are two things. We see here in Jesus' death a love with justice. A love with justice. It's there in the phrase that we just read in in Romans chapter 8, in the phrase that Jesus was sent to be a sin offering. God doesn't merely just, well, like you do when you clean your room. You know, your mum says, clean your room, and because... Honour your parents, love your parents, love you. You say, okay, I will clean my room. And in you go, and you just lift up the edge of the bed. Under the bed she goes. Everything, on the floor. No worries, mum. Love you. Done it. Good. You just sweep it away, right? That's not what God does with our sin. Just ignore it. Just sweep it under the carpet. That's not, that's not right. That's not just. Do you get upset do you get really riled when you see people get away with things that they should never do yes well why should god be less concerned about justice than you on the contrary we saw earlier in exodus 34 that god says of himself that he's the one who will by no means clear the guilty rather he sends his son in our likeness, to be our representative and stand in our place 
so that our sin is condemned in the flesh. The flesh of Jesus as our sin offering. As Paul puts it elsewhere in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, God made him, Jesus, who knew, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, that's love with justice, all there at the cross of Jesus. The second thing to note here is that this demonstrate, this demonstration of God's love in Jesus is not just some sort of distant, interesting, esoteric example of love. It's a love that actually does something for you. Uh, you can see the two pictures I've got there on page 39. If Jesus' death was just some sort of example for us, some sort of noble-esque, watch me go to my death because I love you so much, maybe we'd be in something like the situation in the left-hand box, where we're sort of standing there, we're watching Jesus, Jesus says, I love you, see, I die for you. And we're going, how? But that's not the situation we're in, right? When Jesus gives himself for us, it's because we're in the water, like the stick figure there in the right-hand box. We're in desperate need of saving. You're the figure in the water, and Jesus is the one who's dived in to save you because he loves you. And yes, it cost him his life. Even more, he suffered the punishment, the wrath of God that you and I deserve. That's why the cross is the picture of love, because it's the climax of the story of God's love for the world, including you, including me. Do you know that love of God for you in Christ? Have you taken hold of it with a grateful heart, the forgiveness and freedom that he's won for you in the Lord Jesus? If you've never done so, if you've not yet turned to Jesus in trust and received his forgiveness and grace... Why not do it tonight? See, we're not passive bystanders watching Jesus go to the cross in some name of love. He went there because of our refusal to let God be God, because of our sin, because of our uncleanness. We're the ones in the water in desperate need of saving. And that's each one of us. That's why Jesus went to the cross, to pay for our sins, to make us clean, because he loves us. Have you taken hold of that forgiveness and that cleansing that he offers to you? Have you turned to him in trust and in repentance? Why not do it tonight? the end of tonight's session, there's going to be some EU staff, as we do every evening, standing over here on the left-hand side of the stage. If you want to turn to Christ, come down at the end of the session. They'd love to talk with you and pray with you as you commit yourself to Jesus. Well, what we've seen so far is that the cross of Jesus is this climactic demonstration of God's love for us. But all through this story that we've traced out, God has revealed himself as the God who abounds in love. That's who God is, right? In himself, he is love. So halfway down, page 39, we've come to love's source. We've seen love's picture, the cross, love's story, now love's source, the mutual love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. You see there on the left-hand side what we can read in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved... Let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. For God is love. God is love. In himself as Father, Son and Spirit. That's who God is. Eternal, mutual relationships of love. You can see a bit of this in the diagram there. On the page, you see the father and the son in that picture. The father says to the son, you are my son whom I love. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 11. And, and the son acknowledges, Jesus the son acknowledges this. He says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
That's John 17, 24. And the son responds in love to the father. He says there, I love the father and do exactly what my father has commanded me. That's John 14, 31. So you see there just a bit of a glimpse of the eternal mutual love of God the Father and God the Son. God has always enjoyed these relationships of mutual love as Father, Son and Spirit. So love is not something that originates with us or even in God's love of us. No, love has existed for all eternity in God himself. Which means that love is older than the universe. When did the Father love the Son? What did Jesus say there? You love me before the foundation of the world. Uh, you, maybe you know what it's like when a kid in youth group or kids' church or the really pesky kid in Scripture who just is trying to you know, show that he, know, he or she knows more than you, when they say, well, what was there before the Big Bang, huh? There's lots of answers you can give to that. Um, Aside from the sort of smarty pants answer that, well, since the Big Bang is technically the start of space-time, there is no before the Big Bang because before is a temporal reference. (laughs) That usually shuts them up, but it's not actually terribly helpful. Here's a much better answer. What was before the Big Bang? I'll tell you, love. That's right, isn't it? The eternal love of God the Father, Son and Spirit for one another. And so, you continue, when you love someone, you're doing something that is older than every molecule with which you or that other person are created from. You're doing something that is older than the universe when you love somebody. Because love is from God and in all eternity, God is love. Let's see if that makes them think, just for a little while anyway. Okay, so that's love's source. Let's dig down a bit further and ask about love's shape. What does love look like? Where are we going to find out? Well, we go to the premier picture of love, God's love for us seen there at the cross. What can we say about it then? What does love look like when we look at the cross? So I've got six characteristics from God's love as we see it at the cross. I've just listed them there on page 40. First of all, love, God's love looks outward. In his love, God doesn't focus on himself, but on others. Uh, Mark 10.45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man, talking about himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ's love, see, motivates him to look outward. He doesn't look to his own need or his own comfort. He gives himself in service of others. God's love looks outward. Also, from that same verse there, in his love, you notice that he's a God who, in his love, pays a price. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. When God loves us, it's costly. It costs the Father the death of his Son. Don't even ask me whether I would give up any of my children for you even as much as I might love you. I cannot imagine how God the Father gave up his son for us, but he did. Such is his love. Such is the price he pays to love us. What's even more amazing about God's love is that it was a love that's given to his enemies. It's a love that embraces the enemy. The verse there from Romans 5, 8, that we looked at a few uh, moments ago, Romans 5, verses 8 to 10, but God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. 
while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So this is not like giving up your son for someone who likes you. God doesn't give up his son even because we begged him to. God actually does it when we didn't want anything to do with him. God does it when we are determinedly set against him. Such is his love, a love that embraces the enemy while they are still an enemy. Which makes you realize that because of his love, God gives without reciprocation. God's love is not premised on the fact that you'll love him back. His love is not just for those who are Christians. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. And how did the world repay him? By killing his son. God's love, see, is unconditional. There's no quid pro quo system going on in place. He loves us without necessarily a prospect of being loved in return. But also, God's love includes into relationship. Um, A moment ago, we were talking about love's source. Saw how love has its origin in the eternal relationships, the mutual love between God the Father, Son and Spirit. Well, one of the amazing blessings of becoming a Christian is that when we turn to Jesus in faith and obedience, we are included into that divine relationship of love. It's not just about having your sins forgiven and a sure hope of resurrection, which are great blessings of the gospel. It's about participating in the eternal relationship of love that God the Father and God the Son have for one another. Have a look there at what Jesus said in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love them and show myself to them. So I've tried to sketch it out for you in the picture there on your page. When we love Jesus through faith and obedience, that's the little arrow heading towards the right, the love of the Father and the Son that they have for each other is sort of stretched out to include us. You find that incredible? Such is the love of God for us that he graciously includes us into his own relationships of love. And the final observation on God's love for us is that it is a love that persists. Uh, God's love is no fleeting infatuation. God's love for you doesn't wax and wane. He abounds in steadfast love, constant love. You know, the dial on his love for you is constantly set at maximum all the time. Nothing can separate you from his love for you in Jesus Christ bottom of page 40 you see how the apostle paul puts it in romans 8 who will separate us from the love of christ will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all day long we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered no In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that. Such is God's steadfast and persistent love in Christ that nothing, no person, no power, nothing in death or life can separate us from the love of God expressed to us in Jesus Christ. God's love for you is the, I repeat, it is the most certain reality in your life. Your parents tragically may stop loving you. Your wife or husband painfully may stop loving you. Your kids gut-wrenchingly 
may stop loving you. The people you work with may never love you. (laughs) The people you serve in ministry may not love you. You may be unemployed. You may lose your job. You may bomb out completely at uni. You may get terribly sick. You may lose a loved one. The one certainty, the one precious reality that you can absolutely count on is that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love persists. Amen to that. So how are we going to respond to God's great love for us in Christ? Well, what God wants us to do is to be great lovers ourselves. We're to love as we're to live, sorry, as, as lovers of God and lovers of one another. Uh, Jesus summed it up for us there in Mark 12. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus pretty clearly there sets out the two great commands of God for us, doesn't he? Both of them call us to be lovers, lovers of God and lovers of our neighbor. So let's just think for a moment what it's going to mean for us to do each of these. We've seen that the cross is the place where God clearly demonstrates his love for us. I want to suggest to you something tonight. I want to suggest to you the cross is also the place where we see most clearly what it means to love God and to love our neighbor. So first of all, love for God. I'm suggesting that what it means for us to love God is to echo or copy the love that Jesus the Son shows for his Father. What it means for you to love God is to echo Jesus' love as the Son for the Father. So in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 3, we're told, this is love, this is love for God to obey his commands. That's love for God to obey his commands. But then that's exactly what Jesus said, actually, about his love for his Father. John 14, 31, I do, he said, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And nowhere was he more obedient than at that moment when he went to his death. So love for God shows in obedience. We echo the Son's love for the Father by being obedient to his commands. But that obedience in Jesus was the outworking of something deeper. Obedience is the flowering of faith of entrusting yourself to God because you trust that his ways are the best ways that he will keep his promises and so out of that faith that trusting in his promises and word comes obedience and you see this so clearly as Jesus faced the cross the night before he died as he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane Jesus knew that he was called to give his life as a ransom for us he'd said it earlier to his disciples How was Jesus feeling about that prospect of giving his life? Well, Luke tells us that the prospect filled Jesus with anguish, such that his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. And he tells us that this was Jesus' prayer. He prayed earnestly, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He wants out. But then how does he finish the prayer? Yet not my will, but yours be done. That is, Jesus entrusts himself 
to the Father, even at the very moment where he most clearly would love for it to go some other way. He entrusts himself to his heavenly Father. That's faith showing in obedience. That's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, isn't it? Love for God showing itself in obedience that comes from faith. So again, if you've never responded to God's love for you in Christ, if you've never responded to that love that he has for you by loving him back, why don't you start doing that tonight? Why why don't you tonight be the night where you respond to God's love for you in Christ by loving him back, by turning to him in faith, entrusting yourself to him and seeking with his help the power of his spirit in your life to be obedient to him. Don't put it off when there's so much at stake and his love for you is so great. Don't put it off. Of course, if you're already a Christian, there's still a real challenge there, isn't there, in Jesus' word, to love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And in your life too, this love ought to be showing itself in faith-filled obedience. But we're going to talk more about that tomorrow night. Because what I want us to do now is think about the second command that Jesus gave us, love our neighbor. And again, it's the cross-shaped love of Jesus, which we're called to echo in our love for one another. In fact, the New Testament is um, scarily relentless in the importance it places on our love for each other. According to the New Testament, love is our distinguishing and essential mark as Christians. So you see there again, Jesus' words, John 13, verse 34. I give you a new commandment, he said, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. So there's the standard, right? We're to love just as Christ has loved us. But then he keeps going. By this... Everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's how the world knows that we're followers of Jesus, by the fact that we love each other. The world doesn't go, oh, look, they must be following Jesus because you're wearing an AU T-shirt. No, they know, they really know that we must be Jesus' disciples when we do what Jesus did. When we love, it's our distinguishing mark. And it's also outrageously essential. You remember Paul? what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, first couple of verses. He says, If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I mean, do you read those words and go, ouch, yeah. Words, even truthful words without love, are just a meaningless, irritating noise. And he goes on, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So you might be the smartest Bible kid on the block. A hero, a hero of faith in God. But you're actually nothing because you don't have love for others. He says, if I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So all the impressive works you can do, but with no love, you've gained nothing. Love of neighbor is outrageously essential for Christians and for the Christian community. So what then does this love look like? Well, our love for one another is to look like God's love for us in the cross. It has the same characteristics as God's love for us. You remember those six characteristics we looked at a moment ago? If we're going to be genuinely a community of lovers in obedience to Jesus' command, our love will look like his love. So we'll be pursuing a love that looks outward. Just as Jesus looked outward beyond his own comfort to serve us, we'll look outward and be other person-centered in our love for each other. 
So you can't love people and be focused on yourself. Genuine love looks outward, like God. Our love will be willing to pay the price. Genuine cross-shaped love doesn't love just when it's comfortable or convenient. We're told in 1 John 3 verse 16 that just as Jesus laid down his life for us, we're to lay down our lives for one another. You know, it's not going to be comfortable to take someone into your home who needs help. If you're going to love people, it will cost you time and money. It'll cost you success at work. It'll cost your uni marks. It'll cost your comfort if you're really going to love people. But genuine love, Jesus' cross-shaped love pays a price. Are you willing to pay a price to love people as they need to be loved? Or is the extent of our love controlled by our own comfort level? And like Jesus, we're not just to love our friends either. To love like God means love that embraces the enemy. It means love that gives without expecting reciprocation. It's a love that includes, that embraces and welcomes the outsider, the one who's different, treats them as one of your own. And finally, there on your page, to love like God's love means a love that persists. Uh, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, that cross-shaped love for your neighbor always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Our love for one another has to be persistent enduring, steadfast. Now, loving in these sort of ways is going to be a significantly challenging thing to do, isn't it? Because we're called not just to love one another here in the EU, which frankly is a pretty comfortable challenge. The point of Jesus' parable, say in the Good Samaritan, is that loving your neighbour, well, what's loving your neighbour in the Good Samaritan? Loving your neighbour means loving someone who's in need even when they're quite different to you. I'll be honest, as I was reflecting uh, on what it means for us to love like this, looking outward, paying a price, embracing and including those who are different to ourselves, giving without expecting reciprocation, I just couldn't help but think about the current asylum seeker situation in Australia. When I wrote the outline for this talk, I had no intention of talking about that. It wasn't even in my mind. But as I was working on it, preparing this yeah, a couple of days ago, I just I, I couldn't help but think of it. The solution, in inverted commas, that we've come up with as a nation, that we're not going to accept any refugees by boat, whether they're found to be a legitimate asylum seeker or not, It doesn't appear to have many of those characteristics of love, does it? Looking outward to the need of others, including them into relationship, willing to bear the cost and pay the price. At the same time, the issue is a very difficult one. Even if Australia decided to happily process everyone who came by boat, the journey by boat itself is terribly dangerous. People die coming on boats. And that won't be changed by happily processing all the arrivals. So the issue is complex. How do you address the problem in the countries from which the people were originally fleeing that's causing the flow of refugees in the first place? How do you address that? How do you stop the people smugglers who are ripping people off and endangering their lives? How do we take legitimate steps to ensure domestic security by preventing potential or suspected terrorists from freely entering the Australian community? And what's the best way to care for children who are on these boats? Do we separate them from their family? Do we put them with their family in detention? The issue is complex. But of this, I am sure. The right way for anyone to live in the world the way that is as God intends for humans to treat each other, the way that brings about the best outcome for everyone is the way that God has revealed in the cross of Christ. It's the way of love. 
whatever we decide to do as a nation, and I just say as a, as a Christian, living in a democratic society that grants you a voice, I think we should care actually about what we decide as a nation because it determines how people, real people, are being treated. But whatever we do decide as a nation, what will be best for everyone is if we treat people with love. Love that is outwardly focused on everyone's needs and that includes those living here and the incredible number of displaced persons and refugees around the world. Love that is willing to pay the price of money and of time and of political negotiation. Love that includes the alien, the stranger, into relationship. And just for what it's worth, make no mistake about this, the issue of displaced persons and refugees, those needing asylum, it is a really significant problem around the world. You may not be aware of this. The United Nations released a a report just last month on the number of uh, displaced persons and refugees in 2012 right, that just came out in June. According to that report, last year there were 15.4 million refugees around the world. There were more than 900,000 asylum seekers. And what's more, according to the United Nations, it is actually a growing problem. So they estimate that what happened last year, 2012, was that each day there were 3,000 new refugees every day in 2012. And there's no reason to think that that has stopped. Now, I just want to say there are many other problems in the world too. I am by no means saying that this is the main problem. I'm just raising it because it's current. I just think we can't stick our head in the sand and say it's not a problem. No, it's a problem. It's a growing and significant problem around the world. I don't think we can stick our head in the sand and say, it's not our problem. Because who is your neighbour? How will we love our neighbours, many of whom are in need, both here and overseas? So I raise this with the EU staff. We have a little staff meeting each day at annual conference at quarter past seven. It's a joy to be with brothers and sisters at that hour of the morning, as I'm sure you're aware. And on Tuesday morning, I said, look, I've been, I've just, I've been thinking about this issue as I've been thinking about this talk for, thir- for um, Wednesday night. And as uh, one of the people there in the meeting very helpfully said, he said, the right response to this significant humati- humanitarian problem, it can't just be an immigration response or an aid response. He said the right response as Christians must include a missionary response. What he meant was that the, what's the one thing that will really bring change in the whole displaced person's asylum seeker problem? It's the Christian gospel. See, as people embrace God's message that Jesus is Lord in repentance and faith, that does produce change in their lives and it starts to break down the selfishness and the corruption and the violence and the inequality that has actually created the whole refugee problem. It's not that we don't care about their physical or emotional well-being. We do because they're our neighbour. But we know that it's the gospel which saves and the gospel which transforms individuals, communities, societies. So we need gospel witnesses in Afghanistan and Sri Lanka and Syria and Somalia and Sudan and Iran and Iraq and all the places where so many refugees are running from. We need Christians proclaiming the gospel of Christ in Indonesia and in Papua New Guinea and in detention centers in Australia. We need Christians proclaiming the gospel in Canberra in every suburb and every subculture in Sydney and across Australia because the politicians are only responding to what the general public wants. Jesus has called us to love people and they need the gospel so that they can be saved and transformed. 
So I do want to raise a challenge for us tonight, but it's not directly about displaced persons. It's about the bigger, more basic need for the gospel to get to every person because we're called by Jesus to love them. Uh, In particular, as we heard earlier from Dan and Mel, I want you to consider whether there might be some group of people somewhere in the world who are less reached with the gospel or some place where you know God's people are less resourced to proclaim his gospel, is there some less reached or less resourced place or people that you could love for Christ and his glory? We, would, we want to set up some more of these mission gangs. and They frankly need a much better title and someone who should come up with one. But they're just a bunch of people who get together, who have a heart to see God's gospel take a deep root in a particular less-reached or less-resourced place. It could be a less-reached community in your own suburb. It could be a less-resourced church down the road. It could be overseas, interstate. It could be on our own campus. It might be young people, old people, anything. But when it comes to the gospel and gospel ministry, they're less-reached, they're less-resourced, and we want to love them. Because they're our neighbour. And we know God's love for us in Christ. And the point of being in a mission gang is to meet with these other people who have a heart for the same, less reached, less resourced people or place. Meet together, pray together for that people and place. And the challenging bit, I will admit, is do it with a genuine openness to one day potentially going to that people, that place with the gospel. I'm not saying sign your life away now. I'm saying with a genuine openness to being God's answer to your own prayers. These mission gangs are not for tourists. Oh, I love chocolate croissants and I'd love to go watch the Tour de France from the side of the road. Think I'll join that French mission gang. No, this is actually about praying for the gospel to take a deep root in France, which is massively secular and post-Christian, with a genuine openness to consider going there with the gospel of Christ. Now, I feel very nervous about this, I'll be honest. In my notes it says, now I'm pretty excited about this, but actually I'm feeling nervous. (laughs) It's good to have truth in preaching. Um, I feel nervous because I think, well, you know, maybe the Lord won't do it in the hearts of us. Maybe he won't. Maybe we don't love our neighbour like that. But I've been praying that he would. (laughs) You know that the EU group is one of the one of the largest five university IFES type ministries in the world. In the world. You know the ones where, that are larger? Kenya, Rwanda. They don't have much money. They don't have much training. They don't have the mobility, the blessings that you have. I don't reckon those groups under God have quite the same opportunities that we do. How big's our heart for the world for which Jesus died? How big's his heart for the world, for you? We do this because we want to. It's not about obligation. It's not about duty. It's being filled with a heart of love. We do this freely. So are you willing to think about being part of a mission gang, to pray, to be open to go? I am excited about what the Lord could do amongst us. How exciting was it to see and hear that Dan's mission gang still meeting each month 
and people are going to China. How cool is that under God? So uh, to get us rolling, um, I, we've organised 17 mission gangs. Because, you know, you may as well start small. Um, <laughs> here they are. Here they are. Up on the screen, I'm hoping. Here they go. You can see those. So what we've done is um, I'm, I've put up there uh, different places or people and a mobile number. Each of these mobile numbers is one of the members of the EU staff team. Because I said to them, to get this rolling, I want you to come back to me. I said this on Tuesday morning, uh, Monday morning. I want you to come back to me with something that you're passionate about. What do you want to pray for and where are you, in, you know, potentially open to going? And this is what they came back with. So um, you can see what they are there. I've got to get close. Cambodia, China, Eastern Europe. North Korea, French-speaking North Africa, Singapore, Malaysia, uni students in the South Pacific, uni students in Spain, less resourced areas in Melbourne, Southwest Sydney, the Northern Territory, Indigenous Australians, Muslims, the entertainment industry, I was going to write entertainers, that just sounded a bit weird. <laughs> the architecture industry, refugees and asylum seekers who are in Australia, schools in Australia, lower socioeconomic background communities in Australia. That's quite a few different options. Do any of those grab your heart? To any of those, you say, yeah, I've got a heart for that. That rings my bell. I'd like to pray for that. I'm happy to be considered open about serving there. Maybe none of these do. Well, that's okay. You don't be limited by, by, by me, <laughs> by my imagination or by any other. Just go for it yourself. Um, and so to try and help that, you can notice there's another number down the bottom. You, if, but you need to text your name and the thing that you're interested in, the people or the place you're interested in, and text it to that particular number. We'll try and coordinate something there. So if you're interested, I encourage you to um, text back to those numbers. Uh, There's actually a list over there on the uh, board over there. You can see a hard copy of the same information with the same phone number. So if you couldn't get it down then, it'll be up at the end of the session and you'll be able to get it from over there as well. Okay, so time to end. Some final words. Uh, over the page, page 42, very quickly, how about this? I get, is this hopefully succinct enough for you? It's the end of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. He just says, do everything in love. Is that clear enough? Do everything in love. I don't know why I've never learned that as a memory verse. It seems like a pretty good one. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, mental note. Do everything in love. Uh, But before we do everything in love, we do first need to receive God's love, to get his love for us in Christ inscribed deep into our hearts and minds. So Don Carson puts it like this there on your page. Another rebuke to me in terms of what I've tried to do tonight. The love of God is not merely to be analysed, understood and adopted into holistic categories of integrated theological thought. It is to be received. It is to be absorbed. It is to be felt. So if God's been moving in you tonight, you've decided tonight's the night, you want to receive God's love for you in Christ, come down to the front later and let's pray together. And in fact, it's a great thing, isn't it, to pray for one another this truth, that we would know God's love in Christ in deeper ways. So I'm going to conclude in prayer by using the, the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians there on your page. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing love for us, seen in the death of Jesus for us. Help us all by your Spirit to be rooted and established in that love. May we, together with all your people all over the world, have power through your Spirit 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know in ever deeper ways this love of yours for us that surpasses knowledge. We ask this so that we might be filled to the measure of all your fullness, to Jesus' glory and your eternal praise. In Jesus' name, amen.